Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. On February 24th of this year, Putin invaded Ukraine. By the 27th, he thought his unprepared troops would be in Kiev. He thought the Russian people would lap up his propaganda that the Ukrainian government was fascist and that he was denazifying a country that, unlike Russia, is democratic and alone in Europe has a Jewish president and prime minister. This fraternal war has split families apart. Russians do not want this war, and thousands have and are continuing to be arrested as they protested. The Russian people are being penalized by sanctions on their economy and have become a pariah nation for a war they do not want. And the small neo-Nazi contingent in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion, which are on the US terrorist list, are now paraded as patriotic defenders against an invader and will receive money and support. The West rattled its saber and pushed to expand NATO with full knowledge that Russia was against us and when Russia invaded has left Ukrainians to fend for themselves. This is a particular tragedy with its own nuances. Yet in every particular, there is the universal. On the eve of World War I, in the summer of 1914, Countries on both sides expected the war to be finished quickly and their soldiers back home by Christmas. They called it the war to end all wars, yet it set the stage for World War II. Wars, as Adam Hochschild has so eloquently argued, exacerbate the problems they're intended to solve. I spoke with Adam earlier this month about his work. Adam's captivating and well-researched historical narratives take us to the core of humanity. They are stories of rapacity and injustice, from the brutal colonization of the Congo to the Stalinist purges to apartheid. They are stories of resistance and solidarity from the British emancipation movement to those who exposed King Leopold II's crimes against humanity to the international brigades who came to fight for Spain's popular front. Stories of brutality and brotherhood, conflict and compassion, rapacity and rebellion, of hubris and hypocrisy, but also of hope and humour. They are not merely narratives of events and movements past, but a tapestry of humanity. Welcome to Gravity, Adam. Well, thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. So, while we have a Stygian invasion in Europe, I thought maybe we should start with your book, The War to End All Wars. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. such an inapt phrase and yet used so much. Um, and that war, the war of a lost generation, um, when I believe uh, every Allied soldier lost his life for one inch of land, right? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not everyone was for the war, mm-hmm. and even some families were completely split mm-hmm. in Britain between commanding generals and pacifists. Right. Um, how? Uh, what? What attracted you to write a book about um, the dissidents and the pacifists of the war? Okay. Well, the First World War has always fascinated and obsessed me. Uh, I had a couple of uncles who were in it. I used to hear them talk about it. Uh, My mother lost, who was a teenager at the time, lost several cousins in the war whom she was very fond of. So it was a subject of conversation around our house. And as I grew up and started to read history, I realized that so many of the ills and the problems of the 20th century stem from the First World War. The historian Simon Schama called it the original sin of the 20th century. Uh, It's impossible to imagine the Second World War without the first that laid the groundwork of that 
bitterness and resentment in Germany. So when I wrote my book, uh, To End All Wars, which came out in 2011, what I wanted to do was to try to make a narrative that dramatized not just the absolute insanity of this war, but the fact that many people in all the belligerent countries perceived this war at the time as something that was tragic, unnecessary, and that would remake the world for the worse in every way. So I focused in, in, in To End All Wars on one country, Great Britain, because that is where the anti-war movement uh, was most vocal and most interesting. I think because Britain itself was not attacked by Germany at the beginning of the war. You can sort of understand why a country like France or Belgium, you know, where German soldiers marched in over the border, would want to fight to defend itself and where an anti-war movement would have a hard time getting going. But Britain hadn't been attacked. It joined in voluntarily. And so there were many people, predominantly on the left, but on other parts of the political spectrum as well, who thought that it was a huge mistake for Britain to join the fighting. And... I wanted to tell their story sort of paired with the story of the people who fought the war uh, and what a tremendous, uh, you know, how a whole generation was really crippled and partly killed by this. And my storytelling strategy for the book was to focus on families that were divided by the war where one member was fighting at the front, or in one case actually in the cabinet as Minister of War at one point, and another member of the family was in prison as a conscientious objector or in some other way was campaigning against the war. One pair of characters, for example, is uh, Charlotte Despard, who is a very outspoken uh, British pacifist, uh, while her brother, Sir John French, for the first uh, year or so of the war, was British commander-in-chief on the Western Front. So that was how I tried to tell the story in the book, and um, I hope I succeeded. <laughs> it was such a senseless war, and yet in the beginning, the generals actually, they continued to be. I believe Douglas Haig thought that the man and the horse, the cavalry, was right. still going to be important after World War One. He hadn't learned anything. <laughs> That's right. Generals are always very optimistic when, you know, there are photographs, actually, that show French troops getting into a train that says, at the very beginning of the war, that says on the side, to Berlin. There are photographs of German troops getting into a train that says on the side to Paris and everybody is cheering. So both sides were extremely optimistic at the beginning of the war that it would be over in a matter of weeks and a few cavalry charges here and uh, accurate rifle fire there would quickly subdue the enemy. And of course, it didn't happen that way. The war lasted for four and a half years, killed more than nine million soldiers, left 21 million wounded, some of them really badly so, uh, killed um, uh, an enormous number of civilians. The estimates differ, but it may have been 10 million or more. Um, and 
that kind of delusion persists in all wars. Putin thought when he invaded Ukraine that it would be over in a few days. Yes. He only supplied his troops in the column driving to Kiev with three days' worth of food. Um, and that war is going to drag on for a while. When the U.S. invaded Iraq, they thought it would be over very quickly, and it wasn't. So this happens in all wars. Yeah, Vietnam too. Yeah. But particularly, I think, in World War One, they were used to really quick wars. The Franco-Prussian War was six weeks, and I, I believe that, that this gave people in command who would look over a map and move it little pins about while uh, in Passchendaele they were dying in mud and they they couldn't foresee that. Um, But then what I don't understand is why it took four years. Well, uh, I think you have to look at the the conditioning, the experience that the army officers had had before then. And for the British, French and German armies, the only experience that the officers who were actually in command of the troops at the time of the First World War had had, really, almost their only experience, was in fighting colonial wars Mm. in Africa and Asia, where they were fighting against very poorly armed uh, opponents, uh, Africans and Asians who, you know, at the most had, you know, rifles or muskets, no machine guns, no powerful cannon, no artillery, no motorized transport, nothing like that. So those wars tended to be pretty quick and pretty bloody and brutal for the colonized people who were who were conquered. Um, that was the experience that they'd had, and that was the mindset with which they went off to war. Yeah, and it was also a war that um, brought so much... Uh, Poetry. I, re- I remember when I was a teenager, Wilfred Owen oh, yeah. was really, oh, the That's shrill, cool. demented choirs. And and he he was amazing. And uh, he also you could see in his poetry how he changed. I mean, he volunteered to fight and his first poems were rather patriotic. Mm-hmm. And then he realized we're all giving up our lives in this mud for cloth. <laughs> yeah. really. Definitely the finest poet of the war, I think. Yeah, he... he and, and so tragic. And then, of course, we have France, the uh, one-legged parliament after that. And you mentioned earlier um, that our world today and is really shaped from World War One, and um, the number of deaths that um, occurred from World War One. But also if we include the Spanish flu, which really yeah. came from World War One because right. uh, it was brought to the trenches and the soldiers brought it to every single continent right. when they came right. home. Right, and the first... Yeah cases of the, the, the influenza epidemic of 1918 to 1921 that attracted any medical attention were at a U.S. Army base in Kansas. And the American soldiers brought it to Europe, and as yeah. they fanned out, they spread it everywhere. And then there's the Russian Revolution, which you never know might have occurred without the war, but certainly the war intensified the issues Absolutely. at home, and yeah. um, it was cataclysmic. And then, of course, even if we look at the Ukraine today, we have the Treaty of Brest-Libots that gave Ukraine uh, to the Germans. And um, it's it's shocking how much uh, World War One has, and, of course, the prelude to World War Two, with uh, the Germans not knowing that they were losing at the front and thinking that the generals mm-hmm. had stabbed them in the back, which led to that resentment against so-called traitors, yeah. which, of course... <laughs> 
with scapegoating the Jewish community because unfortunately Europeans at the yeah. time were quite anti-Semitic. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that you note was World War One was the first war where there was so much propaganda on such mm -hmm. a mass scale in all these countries, right? I mean, even the British royal family had to change their name. Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, that's yeah, right. The House of Windsor, I believe, yeah. originated at that time. Yeah, it had to be a massive propaganda war because... Uh, none of the countries involved expected that it would last four and a half years. And if you're going to keep the morale of the civilian population and the morale of the armies up during that long, long period, at a time when people are experiencing severe privation, you know, uh, uh, lack of food that they're accustomed to, uh, um, you know, uh, shortages of all kinds of things, because... You know, everything from railway locomotives to extra supplies of meat and wheat were moved to the front where the soldiers yeah. needed them. So you had to, and you had the factories had to be kept going to produce this stuff. So the propaganda war was necessary for both sides in order to keep the civilians believing and the soldiers believing that there's something worth fighting for here. And the U.S. was no exception. Woodrow Wilson ran in 1916, I'm not going to war. And yet in 1917, the U.S. entered the war and he enacted the uh, Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, which are very amethyst, very nebulous, have also been used. I think Obama used it more than any other president. He used it 11 times. Um, and uh, it's still on the books, unfortunately. Yeah. These laws basically criminalized any dissent against the First World War in the United States. And more than uh, a thousand Americans spent a year or more in prison and a much larger number spent shorter periods of time in prison or jail solely for things that they wrote or said during this period, during the war, and during its immediate aftermath, where people continue to be punished for their statements against the war. All right, under, of course, the First Amendment, because of the exception of national security. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I read an article of yours where you looked at um, the Postmaster General being able to curb the freedom of the press by denying mail allowance and yeah. 75 journals didn't survive? Yeah, this, this is actually the subject of my next book, which is coming out in October, uh, about that period in the United States. And yeah, we had press censorship in this country on a huge scale. Uh, more than 75 publications were shut down entirely. Uh, and many more of them had particular issues censored. Uh, the uh, press censorship powers were put in the hands of the postmaster general who had the power to ban from the mail any issue of a particular publication or a publication itself that he deemed to be subversive. And uh, the postmaster general at the time, Albert Burleson, was a an ardent right-winger, uh, the son of a Confederate veteran uh, who had absolutely no patience for any dissent against the war. Um, 
any black publications that spoke out too loudly for racial justice in the United States because he thought that was distracting attention from the war we should be fighting. And he used these very arbitrary powers very cruelly to really throttle the press in a way that had not happened uh, to that degree before or since. And did this newfound power of the federal government allow it to um, mobilize against the labor movement? Very much so, because really what happened in the United States in that period, um, and this is stuff I all deal with in my forthcoming book, uh, American Midnight, is this. The United States was filled with all kinds of tensions. labor against business. You know, thousands of people had been killed in labor violence in the years before 1917. Uh, Nativists against immigrants. There was a tremendous feeling building against the waves of immigration that were coming to the U.S., primarily from Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, And, uh, um, you know, these and uh, blacks and blacks and whites, tension between blacks and whites, because the great migration of black Americans out of the South began around 1910 and intensified as war industries, which were mainly in the northern states, began wanting low-paid black labor. All of these things were exacerbated by the war, and the America entering the war gave people the excuse to become violent over all of these things. So there was a tremendous outpouring of anger towards immigrants and refugees. There was the worst racial violence between blacks and whites in this country, really, since the end of slavery. Um, And the labor movement was ruthlessly suppressed. Uh, the the industrial workers of the world, the kind of the wobblies, the country's most militant labor union, was essentially crushed and never really came fully back to life. Uh, the Socialist Party was essentially crushed, a party which had gained six percent of the popular vote for president in 1912. Uh, a great many of its uh, Congressional and senatorial candidates, state party leaders, and so on, ended up in prison in this period because that party was opposed to the war. Mm. And I believe there was one socialist that was just refused a seat in the yeah. House of Reps, even though he was voted in. That's right. Victor Victor Berger of Wisconsin, who was elected twice, and the House simply refused to seat him. Same thing happened on the state level. Five socialist members of the New York State Assembly, who were freely elected in a Democratic election, were ejected from the state legislature. Mm. So, you know, wars are not good for democracy. Oh, no. And um, you mentioned uh, that uh, there was an anti-immigrant sentiment, and part of that was that a lot of... uh, well, part of it was racism because a lot mm-hmm. of uh, new immigrants were from uh, Eastern Europe uh, and Southern Europe, but also um, a lot of uh, immigrants were uh, socialist or anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. And Emma Goldman and Alexander Berman were jailed for two years and then deported. Yep, that's right. That's right. All for opposing the draft. Yeah, that was the excuse to get rid of them. The anti-immigrant hostility was basically a uh, a tremendous feeling of resentment uh, on the part of people who had been in the United States for several generations 
and were primarily, their origins were primarily in Northwestern Europe, the British Isles, Germany, uh, uh, Scandinavia, and so on. They were resentful of the newer waves of immigration, which starting around 1890 uh, came primarily from Eastern and Southern Europe. In other words, Italians, Poles, and Jews. Italians, Poles, and Jews at that time had not yet, so to speak, become white in the eyes of native nativist Americans. And that hostility finally culminated in the Immigration Act of 1924, which basically slammed the door on almost all immigration to this country for the next 40 years. It was that act that kept out refugees from the Holocaust. Right, only one ship uh, came in. Well, that you're right. thinking of the ship St. Louis, which was turned away. I and thought sent there was one ship the, that there were there were exceptions. I there mean, were there, exceptions. there there were some thousands of refugees from the Holocaust, but not the hundreds of thousands or that millions, millions yeah. that might have been here had that law not been in place. We talked about racial tension after World War One. The thing that is really so senseless, and the whole war, World War One, was senseless, but the 92nd Battalion, the segregated battalion of African Americans that was told to make their last attack at 10.30 after. Yeah. Now, they knew that the armistice, their commanding yeah. officer knew there was an armistice. Yeah, this is, that, you know, the day, November 11th, uh, 1918, 11 o'clock was the deal that the peace treaty would go into, or the armistice would go into effect, the 11th hour of the 11th month, uh, the 11th day. And the that deal for the armistice had been signed about 5 o'clock in the morning that day, but uh, the Allied armies kept fighting, kept attacking, uh, and issued orders that there should be no let-up in the attacks. And among the Americans, uh, some of the worst casualties were in the 92nd Division, which was all black, uh, whose last attack was ordered at 10.30 that morning, half an hour before the armistice was to take effect. Why, why, why? So thousands of people were killed and more thousands wounded for no military or political reason whatever on that last day. You could also say that for the four years in a way. Yeah, right. But yeah, it just uh, brings it to prominence. Um, and I would like to now move to um, the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. And, and that has really, um, I mean, I used, I used to be actually, frankly, obsessed by the Spanish Civil mm. War. Um, and I realized just very late in life that it was probably because I couldn't deal with my own civil war <laughs> historically. And so um, it was an easier subject. Mm-hmm. I also lived on the Street International Brigade in Belgrade. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all these people from all over the world came to fight with mm-hmm. the Popular Front. And you wrote a book about some of these people uh, from the U.S. and how they came. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some stories, uh, some some characters that fought with the Popular Front and why did they decide to join the Lincoln Brigade? Right. Well, just to back up and give the, the picture of that time, the Spanish Civil War broke out in the summer of 1936 when there was a right-wing military coup against the democratically elected government of Spain, the Spanish Republic, um, where there had been elections earlier that year in which a 
coalition of left and liberal forces won the election. And the conservatives in Spain uh, were extremely upset by this. And there were many, many right-wingers in, in the army, and the high command of the army. They staged an uprising. As soon as it began, Hitler and Mussolini immediately sent arms, planes, tanks, guns, uh, trainers. Uh, Mussolini sent 80,000 ground troops as well. Hitler sent his air force. And so all over the world, people, you know, saw here there is a battle between fascists and Democrats in this country, Spain. And I think in many ways, it really has to be regarded as the first battle of World War II. Yeah. Uh, because these were planes flown by Nazi pilots who were, you know, bombing uh, the democratic forces in Spain. Then the international brigades were volunteers from all over the world, uh, more than 50 countries, who wanted to fight in defense of the Spanish Republic. And the book that I wrote, Spain in Our Hearts, is about the American volunteers uh, among them. 2,800 Americans, certainly the largest number of Americans who've ever gone off to fight in somebody else's uh, civil war. And you asked about sort of particular people who uh, went there. One person, and I sort of start off the book with him, is uh, a guy named Robert Merriman, who... Uh, in the 1930s, was a graduate student here in Berkeley, California, where we're talking. The apartment where he and his wife lived is about four blocks from where we are now. <laughs> and he was a graduate student in economics in Berkeley. Uh, he was working on his dissertation at the time when the Spanish Civil War began. He went there to fight. Uh, his wife, uh, Marion, volunteered as well. She was a clerk in the International Brigade's headquarters. And Bob Merriman was killed uh, about a year and a half into the war, went missing in action. His body was never found. Uh, and we know where he disappeared. I've been to the hilltop where he was last seen alive. Uh, roughly 750 other Americans died in that war. Many more were wounded. Um, they failed, unfortunately, to stop the uh, the nationalists, as the Spanish fascists were, were known, from taking over the country. And Franco became, Francisco Franco became dictator of Spain and ruled for some 36 years until his death. Um, but today, the much of the Spanish population regards these International Brigade volunteers as great heroes. And happily, Spain is a democracy again. Mm, monarchy and a democracy. Yeah. Just like many countries in Europe. Yeah. But uh, in 1936, there was another war um, in which, of course, the League did nothing as well. And that was in Abyssinia, in Ethiopia. So you had aerial bombardment, mustard gas used against um, the population by fascist forces. And right. that was uh, Mussolini went in. Um, and actually, uh, Italy was um, trying to, I think in 1896, they had lost a war in Abyssinia and then they were trying to um, muster up some. Italy, Italy had always had colonial ambitions in Africa. Yeah. 
And uh, Mussolini made this grab for what is now Ethiopia at that time. Yeah. There were so many other conflicts that were the prelude to World War II. You know, Manchuria. Americans didn't go to Abyssinia, but they mm-hmm. did go to Spain. They, well, they tried. There were black American volunteers who tried to go to ah. Abyssinia, uh, but ran into logistical difficulties in getting there. The other thing with the Spanish Civil War is that so much fantastic art and literature, I mean, I think that is the tragedy or the paradox of our human existence, that art comes from suffering. So great literature and great art comes from suffering. But there's Dali's premonition of civil war, Mavuel's elegy to the Spanish Republic, Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, books by Malru and Camus, and of course Orwell, his homage to Catalonia is just an intensely entertaining read, um, particularly because it really shows um, the internecine conflicts of the left. And I think that the reason the Spanish Civil War has um, been so important in history is that it really shows, and time and time again this has happened, but it's just such a microcosm of the major problem of the left that we fight each other, we Mm -hmm. squabble, and yet on the right, somehow they're so organized, they know how to get aligned. And what happened was the popular front was not really very leftist. It was just mm-hmm. a centrist government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, then you had the Stalinists, the Trotskyites, the anarchists. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, they fought each other and they lost. And I keep thinking, why are we so late to the table? And I think it comes even from the eponymous term of the left, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it the left? Because the Girondists came first and they, of course, sat on the right. And then the Jacobins came in late and had to sit on the left. Um, Do you think that this is a continuing problem on the left? Well, you know, I always welcome any fractionalism on the right as well. And sometimes we see it. Uh, We're seeing it right now, incidentally, as we speak, because much of the European right up to this moment, has sort of idolized Vladimir Putin, uh, but uh, are having to backtrack severely now that Putin has sort of become a villain in the eyes of the whole world by his very brutal invasion of Ukraine. Um, So I see some divisions on the right, too. But you're right, the left is always very prone uh, to divisions. In Spain, I think the division uh, was was multiple because it was a very fractionalized uh, uh, left wing of the Spanish Republic. The principal battle being between the communists who believed that there should be, not unreasonably, I must say, that there should be a, a central army operating under discipline with all forces under the, the command of one army, which is not an unreasonable position to take when you're fighting people who are backed by Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, You know, much as I don't, as I despise the Soviet regime of that time, I think they were right to insist on some sort of unified command in Spain. Whereas Spain had a very strong anarchist movement where the anarchist uh, uh, political party, anarchist trade unions and so on, all had their own independent militia groups Uh who were also fighting at the front. And the central government sort of wanted to bring them all under one unified command. And eventually they came to blows. And this is the tension that Orwell describes in his wonderful book, Homage to Catalonia, which is also partly about 
the suppression by the government of the Spanish Republic, in which the communists were enormously powerful, the suppression of the anarchist experiment uh-huh. in Spain, where for some months in the northeastern part of the country, it was really the most far-reaching social revolution that Europe had ever seen. You know, workers took over factories, waiters took over restaurants, peasants took over large... Yeah farmlands and so on, something quite extraordinary and exciting about all this, but it's very difficult to make a revolution in the middle of a war. Yes, and that is unfortunately what they found. And um, now Picasso, who was in France at the time, I don't believe he uh, went back to Spain at all during uh, the war, but he did uh, paint Guernica. He did. Which uh, is an amazing painting. And um, that was from the German bombing of Guernica. And you made a point that I had not thought about before. And it really enlightened me that um, Germany was using the war, the theater, so-called, to test its weapons. Absolutely. All the principal German weapons of World War II, the 88-millimeter artillery, the Messerschmitt 109 uh, fighter plane, the Stuka dive bomber, you know, the most famous... Perhaps the most famous three German weapons of World War II were used in Spain for the first time on a wide scale. If you're planning a world war, it's very handy to have a somewhat smaller war in which you can try out your weapons. And that's the opportunity that Hitler took advantage of. Oil companies are also uh, no stranger to war, but uh, I was amazed to find out at what lengths uh, Texaco yeah. <laughs> went to support Franco. If you could uh, please let our audience know. Yeah, well, the the strange thing about the Spanish Civil War was that you know, there was this famous international crew of very distinguished journalists who were there in huge numbers. So the war got an immense amount of press attention. Um, more than a thousand headlines in the New York Times, for instance, during a period that it was on. Uh, every major newspaper in the world had a correspondent in Spain. They all lived in the same hotel in Madrid. Uh, and like uh, journalists in conflict zones, which I've occasionally been myself in my life, reporters in such situations often pa- practice a kind of herd behavior. Uh, and none of them asked the question. They wrote eloquent stories about what it was like to be in the first European capital that was under heavy, sustained aerial bombardment. They wrote moving, eloquent stories about this. But none of them ever looked up and asked, what fuel is powering those Nazi planes that are bombing us? Which should have been an obvious question, because uh, Spain had no oil wells. The principal source of oil in the world at that point was the United States. America supposedly had an embargo on sending any kind of products to either side in Spain. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, those Nazi bombers and most of Franco's army was fueled by oil from Texaco, which at the time had a CEO, Torquild Reber, Norwegian by birth, who loved dictators. He was fond of Hitler. He was fond of Mussolini, fond of strongmen elsewhere. And he violated this embargo. His 
uh, tankers full of oil and aviation fuel and gasoline because you need that for army trucks and tanks. Mm-hmm. You need diesel fuel for, for some and gasoline for others and special aviation gas. These tankers would leave the Texaco refinery at Port Arthur, Texas, uh, ostensibly bound for Antwerp or Rotterdam or some European port. And at sea, their captains would open sealed orders redirecting them to ports in nationalist Spain. And they supplied Franco with all his oil. And nobody questioned it. <laughs> right. Well, no, nobody, yeah. They, they didn't put a stop to it, and they could have at the time. The U.S. government could have. Now, while the Spanish Civil War was going on from uh, 1936 to 1939, in Russia, in the USSR, Stalin, who um, I guess was Hitler's um, best unwitting agent, mm-hmm. managed to decimate his population, um, killed millions of people, sent many millions to gulags to die. And what was so insane was that all the opponents had really gone by that time. So yeah. what was he doing? Well, that period has always fascinated me. I've always been deeply uh, fascinated by Russian history. Uh, you know, how could the country that gave us Tolstoy and Chekhov also give us the gulag? And it's particularly uh, baffling in this period because the most murderous period of Soviet history really began after all of Stalin's real opponents were dead, exiled, or in jail. Only at that point did what's usually called the Great Purge begin in 1936, where millions upon millions of people were arrested, sent to the gulag. Um, The estimates now are that uh, somewhere close to a million of them were shot outright. Nobody knows how many more in total were sent to the gulag, but it's certainly way up there in, in the, the multiple millions. And um, it was just, it was as if a country was doing a genocide on itself. Mm. And this lasted for three or four years. I think it's, it's a, a pure reflection of Stalin's absolutely paranoid uh, personality. Uh, he saw enemies where there weren't, he executed, you know, the, the cream of the Red Army Officer Corps, uh, executed diplomats, executed people who knew foreign languages so, because that might have allowed them to communicate with other parts of the world. Uh, he was paranoid. Hmm. And while this was going on, of course, nobody could talk about it openly. During the whole Soviet period, there was very little open discussion of it. And when I went to Russia a number of times as a journalist in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I noticed, you know, if somebody trusted you, they would talk to you in private over the kitchen table about how, you know, my uncle was shot in 1937 and my grandmother spent 10 years in the gulag and so on. But there was no public discussion of this in any way. Then once one change finally came, when Gorbachev came to power and began opening things up and allowing open discussion of Soviet history and much more, I really wanted to listen in on that conversation. Uh, So 
uh, and see what it was like. So my family and I moved to uh, Moscow for six months in the first half of 1991. And I visited people who were digging up mass graves. I talked to many veterans of the Gulag. I talked to uh, former secret police officers, some repentant, some not repentant, and wrote a book about it, uh, The Unquiet Ghost, uh, Russians Remember Stalin. Right, and you went to a village that suddenly saw a mass grave? Oh, that was a fascinating... You know, I could have written a whole book just about this place, Kolpashevo, which is a, uh, a town on the banks of the Ob River in central Siberia, And this is one of the three or four great rivers that flow from south to north uh, through Siberia, reaching the Arctic Ocean. And like many other rivers that flow through flat countryside, like the Mississippi in this country, in the spring flood season, the Ob sometimes overflows its banks. And in 1979, which was still during the Soviet period and before things had loosened up in any way, the Ob overflowed its banks at this town of Kolpashevo, began washing away the riverbank, and all of a sudden hundreds of bodies appeared. And everybody knew why they were at this particular spot, because the spot where the riverbank started washing away was where the city's secret police prison had stood during the 1930s, during the purge period. This is also a permafrost region, which means that the bodies that were buried far down were frozen solid. And people from the village could come and peer into this newly opened mass grave and actually recognize people who had been arrested, taken away, and shot 40 years earlier in They were still in the clothes that they were wearing. All this was hushed up at the time. But, you know, when Gorbachev started making his reforms and it became possible to talk about this, people began investigating, uh, writing about it. And when I got there in 1991, they were willing to talk about it. I interviewed one woman, a retired school teacher whose father was in this mass grave. I interviewed a neighbor of hers a few blocks away, also a retired school teacher, and the women knew each other, whose father had been the commander of the secret police prison that sent uh. all these people into the grave. And that's why I say I could have written a whole book just about this town. Um, extraordinary. And, and every community in that vast country was dealing with this kind of thing in their heritage because of the vast scale of deaths in the 1930s. But did Russia really reconcile with Stalinism? Because I think, I, I don't know if it did. I, and I wonder whether Putin would still would be in power if it really had. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, certainly during, you know, f- during the 1990s, uh, and in a way the peak of it was 1991 when I was there, there was a lot of reckoning, a lot of digging up mass graves, People who had been shot or imprisoned in the 1930s could be officially rehabilitated if you applied to the right government Uh department and so forth. And the history books got rewritten and so on. But this was began to be considered a threat by Vladimir Putin. And actually, in the last few months, he completely closed down the organization 
called Memorial, which was doing most of this work, and whose various chapters around the country were so helpful to me when I was there. That organization is now closed, shut down. He thinks it's not good for Russia's pride that people pour over this uh, difficult part of their past. A difficult part of yeah. their past. Yeah. So no more of that. But one has to really think. I mean, Stalin was one man in a country of tens of tens of millions of people. How, how did this repression come about? I mean, how did this machinery of repression, and it's not just in Russia. I mean, we have machineries yeah. of repression throughout history. But how does that happen? Yeah. And could it have been otherwise? Yeah. That's, that's the question one has to ask. I mean, of course... Russia didn't have a very good background for the formation of a democracy <laughs> in the sense that uh, Tsar Nicholas II, the last Tsar who wasn't deposed until 1917, was the last absolute monarch in Europe. He had total absolute power. There was a, uh, a legislator later, but it could be overruled by the Tsar. So when you have that kind of background, plus a heritage of uh, a lot of censorship, you know, even mm -hmm. their greatest novelist, Tolstoy, couldn't publish all his works in his lifetime, um, it, it's not good groundwork for democracy. Then the revolution happened, which was really a coup staged by the Bolsheviks, the most militant uh, left group, who took over in the fall of 1917, Russia had the first thing resembling a real free election that they'd ever had. A new legislative assembly was, uh, was elected. And when that assembly met at the beginning of 1918, the Bolsheviks allowed it to meet for one day, and then armed soldiers invaded the meeting hall, sent everybody home. No more elections for 70 years. Mm -hmm. So... When that's the groundwork, it's very easy for a dictatorship to, to take over. And, you know, democracy is a very fragile plant. It takes a lot of fertilizing. It takes a lot of nurturing. Uh, it can be threatened so easily. And we've seen that here in this country. You know, people can invade the United States Capitol and try to invalidate an, an election. Um, there are very few places in the world where democracy feels really deeply secure to me right now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and Russia sure isn't one of them. They've mm -hmm. got a got a new czar in control right now. The only uh, good news is that opposition is rising in Russia. I mean, a lot of people are also fleeing Russia, but um, this could be his downfall. Let's <laughs> hope, but I'm not too optimistic. Um have to have hope. We've talked about Stalin, an infamous household yeah. name, and yeah. Hitler is also another infamous yeah. household name. But King Leopold mm -hmm. of Belgium okay. should also be yeah. another um, infamous household name. Uh, he is really just the archetypal villain, isn't yeah. he? Hey, if you like Stalin, you'll love King Leopold II. Yeah! I, I mean, your book is just... I, I'm trying to think of one word that can encapsulate it, and uh, but my words are failing me. It is just something that you have to read. It is amazing how this man, who is 
purportedly a constitutional monarch. Mm-hmm. And I guess he was very upset mm-hmm. that he um, had this parliament that he had to deal with. But how did he get one thirteenth of the African continent, mm-hmm. uh, about, what, 76 times more than the size of Belgium, and yeah. be able to control it from afar with such despotism, such brutality that... Uh, the, one can't even fathom the atrocities that he committed upon those people, the forced labor, the whippings, the amputations of hands. Uh, could you explain um, to our audience how this uh, inaptly named Congo Free State yeah. came about? Well, here's the story I told in, in the book, King Leopold's Ghost. Um, King Leopold II of Belgium uh, took the throne of his country at the age of 30 in 1865. Uh, He was very frustrated to be king of such a small country. And he was also frustrated to be a king at a time when it wasn't so much fun to be a monarch anymore because you had to share power with elected parliaments and worry about, you know, voters and things like that. No, no... No authoritarian wants to have to worry about the voters. Uh, and so he was looking for a part of the world. It was it was clear that in Belgium, his power would be decreasing gradually over his lifetime, which it did, uh, as for most European monarchs outside of Russia. But he was looking for a part of the world where he could reign supreme and where he could make a lot of money. And this was the period of time when Europe was just beginning to get its hands on Africa. And the whole colonization of the African continent was something that happened remarkably quickly. In 1870, roughly 80% of Africa south of the Sahara was uh, under indigenous rulers, kings, chiefs, uh, whatever or in some places where the rainforest was very dense, there was, you know, no government. People, you know, could barely walk a few miles through the dense forest, and they lived in self-sufficient little communities. Uh, By 40 years later, virtually that entire part of the continent, the lower 80% of the continent, was either under colonial rule or in white settler colonies like South Africa. Uh, ruled by their white inhabitants. The only exceptions were Liberia and and Ethiopia. Um, So that big African land grab happened with remarkable speed. King Leopold saw it beginning and got in on it very early. He first presented himself to the world as a philanthropist who was financing exploration and scientific discovery. (laughs) Then he hired the British explorer, Henry Morton Stanley, the man who found Livingston, sent him to Africa uh, for four or five years to essentially stake out this huge territory in the center of the continent, roughly the same territory that's Democratic Republic of Congo today. Uh, And then Leopold bamboozled first the United States and then very quickly all the major nations of Europe into recognizing this territory as belonging to him personally. This happened in uh, 1884 and 1885. And the other countries agreed to it because 
A number of the European countries were themselves grabbing for land in Africa. Uh, the Americans uh, didn't really care what happened on that continent, and Le- Leopold had a very efficient American lobbyist who, you know, paid off the right people and entertained the right people and got this uh, uh, the right declaration from the American president at the time, uh, and. This was sort of part of the beginning of the dividing up of the African continent, something that took quite a few more years to fully happen, but where essentially the continent got parceled out among the major European powers, principally English, England, France, uh, Germany, and Portugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with this big territory in the center of the continent belonging not to Belgium, but to King Leopold II personally, Belgium, being a small country with no merchant marine, was not particularly interested in colonies. But to Leopold, that was fine. He said, you know, I'll get my own. And the other countries were happy to recognize him as as owning this territory. Um, And then he set out to make as much money from it as he possibly could. The first thing that Europeans were after in that part of Africa was ivory, which was a tremendously valuable commodity at the time, because this was before plastic. Uh, Ivory could be carved into uh, piano keys, uh, Mm -hmm. jewelry, statuettes, uh, ornaments of all kinds. Most of the piano keyboards in the United States at that time were made out of Congo ivory. Uh, that was uh, shaped into into the tops of piano keys at the town of Ivoryton, Connecticut. Uh, And uh, so he made a lot of money off ivory. Then something else happened that opened up the possibility for a much larger fortune. They invented in Europe the inflatable bicycle tire. And this, which was followed very quickly by the invention of the automobile and by tremendously expanded uh, need for rubber all around the world. Rubber for uses in industry as belts and machinery, rubber to coat telephone and telegraph wires, rubber for automobile tires, and so forth. There was a huge rubber boom beginning in the early 1890s. Well, all over the world, people rushed to plant rubber trees. But to bring a plantation of rubber trees to maturity where you can begin tapping the trees and harvesting the rubber can take as long as 15 years. So the people who really made a killing were those who owned territory where rubber grew wild. And nobody had more such territory than King Leopold because rubber grows wild in the great Central African rainforest, which covered about half of the Congo. Uh, that rubber comes not in the form of trees, but vines that twine around palm trees and other trees up to where they can get some sunlight. So he had all this rubber in his territory. Uh, how could he gather it? Um, he needed to get Africans to go into the rainforests, And these, these rubber vines, you may have only one or two an acre, so they are scattered very widely. Mm-hmm. You need to get Africans to go into the rainforest to tap the vines and, and get wild rubber, which is a very labor-intensive process. The way that he accomplished this was he would send his army, he had an army of 19,000, 
uh, black conscript soldiers under white officers. He would send them into village after village. They would hold the women of the village hostage. And you can see photographs of these women in chains while the men of each village went deep into the rainforest, scattering far and wide for days out of each month, sometimes for weeks out of each month, in order to gather a monthly quota of wild rubber. And only then would their wives and sisters and daughters be released from their chains. So from this, these two principal commodities, rubber and ivory, Leopold amassed a fortune well over a billion in today's American dollars. Huge numbers of people died because when you have uh, you know, men working as forced laborers, women uh, uh, tied up in chains, people stop having children, people don't get enough to eat, there aren't people to harvest and plant to plant and harvest crops or to go hunting and fishing and do all the other things through which a, uh, a community normally feeds itself. Uh, plus, there were rebellions against this regime, um, which were all uh, cut down mercilessly by Leopold's troops, who had machine guns and modern weapons and so on, which the Africans did not have. Um, diseases took a terrible toll. Because when you have people who are very short of food, which happened during this forced labor regime, they succumb to all sorts of diseases that they might otherwise have survived. And historians estimate for, that from all of these sources, the population of the Congo over about a 40-year period dropped from around 20 million to around 10 million people. Mm-hmm. An enormous holocaust. Yes, it was a holocaust. Um 10 million people. Sometimes I've, I've even read that it might be more, maybe closer to 13 million, but I guess... People just, make different estimates. Yeah, people yeah. make different but estimates. But you will never know. They are just <laughs> amazingly uh, huge. Uh, and the, the thing about Leopold was that he was such a villain, but he was very clever, right? Like he, he um, was able to somehow be emperor of the Congo mm-hmm. without and, and reap the profits. And he was able to play different powers against each other. He played the French against the British, right? Mm-hmm. How did he get the French first to... Well, France was a little worried about his getting all this territory because they didn't want to see it going to Britain. So he gave France what would be called by an American real estate agent the right of first refusal. Mm. So, in other words, if he ever had to sell the territory, France would get the first right to buy it. And France thought he just wouldn't succeed in the Congo and they would be able to right, get it. Yeah, right. But they were wrong. But the France made a huge amount of money also off rubber slavery in that same part of Africa. That is true. Now, I want to turn to E.D. Morrell. Now, mm-hmm. um, he was also um, a pacifist in World War One, and he was mm-hmm. opposed to the war and um, jailed because of that. But um, here is a man that worked for uh, a Liverpool shipping company that was uh, that spoke French and was sent to Belgium, and he watched the ships. Yeah. And how did he deduce from watching the ships that slavery was going on? Yeah, it's an amazing thing because this whole system of slavery for gathering, and you really have to call it that, for gathering first ivory and then wild rubber, had been going on in one form or another for for 10 or 15 years. But very little news about it got back to Europe. Mm. 
There were a few brave witnesses, most of them missionaries, who tried to do what they could to alerting Europeans and Americans to what was going on. But they didn't have clout in the media. Uh, they wrote for church newsletters and so on. Their reports were not at all widely circulated. Um, so there was not much attention to this. And Leopold was quite successful at portraying himself to the world as the benign philanthropic monarch who was in the Congo only to bring civilization and Christianity and uplift these poor benighted people. Well, to bring all this rubber and ivory back to Europe, Leopold turned to a British shipping company based in Liverpool and gave it the monopoly on all the shipping traffic between the Congo and the big Belgian port of Antwerp. The shipping company had a young guy on its staff, Edmund Dean Morel, who was bilingual in English and French. Uh, his father was French. And, you know, a 25-year-old clerk in this shipping company. And they would send him to the port of Antwerp every couple of weeks to check in the com company's ships, make sure, you know, the cargo lists were tallied properly and the ship got loaded, turned around to go back to Africa. And standing on that dock in Antwerp, and I've actually been to the dock and stood there and tried to imagine what it was like for him, Morel realized something. He saw his company's ships arriving uh, in Antwerp, uh, filled to the hatch covers with these enormously valuable cargoes of ivory and wild rubber. And he knew how labor-intensive gathering wild rubber especially was. Then they unloaded. They reloaded, turned around, and sailed back to Africa, but they were not carrying any trading goods, no commodities. Nothing was being traded for the rubber and ivory. They were not sending anything to Africa to pay for this. Mm -hmm. uh, the ships were mostly carrying soldiers, firearms, and ammunition. And from this, Morel realized, I'm seeing evidence of a slave labor system thousands of miles away from this from us. There, there can be no other explanation. So he went to the head of the shipping company and said, there's something terrible going on here. We can't be a party to it. The head of the shipping company told him to get lost. That didn't work. He tried to promote Morel to another job in another country. That didn't work. Tried to pay him some money to shut up. That didn't work. Morel quit his job and turned himself into the great British investigative journalist of his time. Uh, he was absolutely outraged that he had been a part of this slave labor system, however briefly. And he devoted himself 10 or 12 hours a day for the next decade to putting the story of slave labor in King Leopold's Congo on the world's front pages. And he really succeeded. And, but he never went to the Congo, right? He never went there. Uh, his life would probably not have been safe there because the king was furious that Moreau was doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, tried to send somebody to bribe him to stop. Uh, tried to leak false information to him. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the king was absolutely enraged. He never went to the Congo, but people who were there who had information that they knew would be useful to Morel, managed to get it to him, principally the missionaries. There were a small number of American, British, 
and Swedish Protestant missionaries in the Congo, most of whom were happy to go along with the system as it was, but there were a few of them who were really alarmed by what they were seeing. Their data, their photographs were important ammunition for morale. And what about Roger Casement? Roger Casement was the British consul in the Congo. And when Morel had kicked up a real fuss in Britain and people were saying, uh, you know, hey, there, there really is slave labor here, the British government, which sort of assumed the right to investigate anything anywhere in the world, uh, commissioned their consul in the Congo to make an investigative voyage up the Congo River by steamboat and check out these claims. You know, are they really enslaving Africans there? And if so, that would be a violation of various treaties and so on. And Caseman did that, wrote an excoriating report, which created a tremendous ruckus, which, when it appeared, became a close friend of Morel. Behind the scenes gave Morel a lot of advice about uh, uh, the, the Congo Reform Association, which was the group that Morel had, had formed. Casement couldn't be involved in it directly because he remained in the British consular service, but they became close friends and, and collaborators. The other interesting thing about Casement is that he was Irish. Mm -hmm. And in the course of carrying out this investigation in the Congo, he began to realize Ireland is also a colony. Ireland is also exploited. Yeah. And uh, uh, Casement then... Uh, left the consular service, joined the Irish independence movement, uh, and he, not before, not without being knighted for his services, became Sir Roger Casement, and was the first, I believe, knight of the realm to be hanged in several hundred years uh, as an Irish patriot uh, because he had uh, taken up arms against Britain. Well, I mean, Ireland was the colony. Someone just has to read a modest proposal. Yeah. <laughs> One of the right. greatest uh, essays in modern literature. Yeah. And also, unfortunately, true, the best uh, English authors were Irish. That's true. That's true. Shaw, Yeats, yes, Joyce. Exactly. Yeah. All Irish. Yeah. Um, one other thing that uh, really stood out in the... I mean, so many things stood out in the book, but... Um, it seems Leopold was forced to um, ha make his own royal commission into atrocities. Yeah. He thought that he could fool everybody and control this commission, but somehow things went awry and he yeah. lost control. How did, how that, did that was happen? a fascinating process. When there was this international protest movement against the atrocities in the Congo, which was largely or orchestrated by Morel, Leopold wanted to clear his name, so he appointed an independent commission of inquiry of three judges from three different countries, each of whom owed him a favor of one sort or another. So he thought, um, or were hoping for a job from him or something like that. So he, he thought this commission would clear his name. But amazingly, as occasionally happens... Uh, this commission actually did its homework pretty conscientiously. They traveled up and down the Congo River by steamboat. They held hearings. Uh, they uh, wrote uh, a quite critical report on the basis of these hearings. They collected 
uh, hundreds of pages of testimony from Africans who described what it was like to see their villages ravaged and to be forced to work as slave laborers and so on. Leopold was appalled by this, and in order to forestall the impact of the report, he, which was first presented to him before it was publicly released, he quickly had a so-called summary of the report prepared uh, and released to the press, no. knowing that uh, newspaper reporters have to work on a tight deadline. They won't have the time to read a 300-page report, but they might read a 20-page summary. And this summary did not really summarize the report and put a much more benign face on things. Not unlike Attorney General Barr's summary of Robert Mueller's report <laughs> on uh, uh, President Trump and the Russians. And uh, uh, so that kind of blunted the public impact of the report. And then Leopold saw to it that the African testimonies that were given to the commission which is really the, the heart of what should have been made public, uh, and is really the only extensive collection of Congolese voices that exists on paper from that period, uh, that this was put under lock, of key, lock and key in the Belgian archives, where it remained for the next 70 years, until hmm. finally it was released at last. There was an international movement. Mark Twain wrote you know, King Leopold's Apologia, his soliloquy, and so we know there was this global yeah. movement, and yet, how did we forget? How did that occur? Well, I think that has to do with the First World War, that the, this tremendous international protest against the, the uh, atrocities in Leopold's Congo, which was really the first great international human rights campaign of the 20th century, happened on the eve of the First World War. Then, uh, in 1914... Germany, among other things, invaded Belgium, took over almost the entire country, forced a number of Belgians to go to work as slave laborers, uh, looted the country terribly, treated it nastily, and all of British and American and French war propaganda was based on coming to the aid of poor, innocent, victimized, little neutral Belgium, ah. which was indeed treated very badly. Uh, but it didn't suit anybody to remember all the things that the Belgians were accused of during right. that time. Yes, and that is how it goes right? yeah. in history. When I was reading your book, when I was picturing, and you have such vivid descriptions, so it was very easy to picture, you know, Stanley under the Congo Free State flag yeah. as he's going up the Congo River, not knowing where it's going to lead. And I thought, wow. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Because um, the European flag is so similar to the Congo Free yeah, State. I don't understand. And it's in Brussels. Yeah. I don't understand why people don't think about these things. I mean, maybe they could be a little more tact well, involved. Well, it's just I, actually, many other European countries, of course, were involved in colonizing Africa as yeah. well. Uh, France, Germany, Portugal, Great Britain. And in all of the other uh, colonies that had were similarly rich in wild rubber, which meant uh, 
Cameroon, which the Germans owned, northern Angola, which the Portuguese had, yeah. so-called French Congo, which was just across the river from Leopold's Congo, they used the same system. They saw what Leopold was doing. They saw how much money he was making. They adopted the same slave labor system. And in places where they collected statistics, principally French Congo, where it's best documented, the, uh, the death rate was the same. So, you know, there's nothing sort of distinct about Belgium. And in that era, also, the United States waged a brutal, ruthless uh, uh, colonial war in the Philippines to subdue this, the independence movement in that country, which we had captured from Spain. So nobody has clean hands in that period. Well, (laughs) or or I guess perhaps um, even now, because uh, we... I was just speaking to you before how um, we are going into Africa, uh, continuing to do so, and also China is doing the mm-hmm. same thing. And we are destroying the environment there. We, we're using children to mine, and we're mining lithium and cobalt and coltan for our phones and our, and our other devices that all need um, rechargeable batteries so that we can have clean energy, mm-hmm. so that we can have clean air. Mm-hmm. But we pollute them and we destroy them and they continue to... I mean, con- the Congo, the DRC should be the most, the richest country it in the world. Be. It, it really be. should be. And yet it's still one of the poorest. Yeah. And I still think one of the gravest crimes of the 20th century was killing Patrice Lumumba, mm-hmm. which the CIA engineered. I mean, he was such a charismatic, amazing, intelligent man that saw... Pan-Africanism and socialism was the way to go in Africa, and they just couldn't. Mm-hmm. He he was democratically elected, and that was, I guess, the the last real hope for a long time. Yeah. Well, he was he was the first democratically chosen prime minister in Congo. Yeah. Just at the point that Belgium pulled out in 1960, but of course he believed that Africa should be economically independent of Europe, not just politically independent. Yeah. And this was going a step too far for the Americans and the Belgians, uh, who engineered his assassination. First, his being deposed as prime minister by anti-Lumumba forces in the government and then his assassination only six months after he'd first taken power. And who did they install? Mobutu? The, what a tyrant. <laughs> I know, who reigned for 32 years, plundered his country even more thoroughly than Leopold, although he had a more developed economy to plunder. Uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush called him one of our greatest friends in Africa. Ugh. And over the years, various administrations gave him more than a billion dollars in American aid. It's terrible. I want to go somewhere now in mm-hmm. the world uh, to George Yard. And I want to go somewhere in history on May 22, 1787. What was so important about a meeting that was held in this printing shop? I think this date almost ought to be celebrated as International Human Rights Day or something, because to me it was a really epical event. On that day, in a Quaker bookstore and printing shop in this place in central London, a little courtyard called George Yard, which is still there, although the Quaker bookstore and printing shop is not, not, um, 12 people got together and formed themselves into a committee 
dedicated to ending first the slave trade and then slavery itself in the British Empire. And here's what made that so remarkable. Uh, Great Britain at that time was the uh, dominated the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, half the captured Africans transported across the Atlantic Ocean and the terrible conditions in the holds of those slave ships traveled in British ships. British ships were delivering them uh, not just to Britain's own colonies, of which there were many in, in the West Indies principally, but also to you know, French and, and Portuguese colonies in the West Indies and in Brazil to the American South. So to have an anti-slavery movement begin in Britain would almost be like having the first movement for renewable energy to begin in Saudi Arabia today. <laughs> uh, and furthermore, this was a time, 1787, when people in Europe and the United States, which was new, just having its own constitutional convention at that time, when most people in Europe and the U.S. took slavery for granted. It had always been there. It was the foundation of many economies. The Romans had had slaves. The Greeks had had slaves. If you'd stood up on a street corner in London in 1787 and began preaching that slavery ought to end, you know, uh, nine people out of ten would have thought you were a complete crackpot. And the tenth would have thought, well... Good luck, you'll never do it, though, because it's too embedded in our economies. It would be like preaching against the use of the automobile today, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but this remarkable movement took off at that point, which, uh, and it's curious why it took off right then. I think partly it was because it was a time midway between the American and the French revolutions, so there were a lot of ideas about human freedom and liberty in the air. And uh, they also developed, as this movement grew, they developed almost every technique that we take for granted in community organizing today. They developed the first political poster. Huh. And you've seen it. It's that top-down diagrammatic image of a slave ship with the bodies of individual enslaved Africans packed together almost like sardines. You know, it's on book covers and record covers and all mm -hmm. sorts of things uh, today. That was the first political poster. This committee ran off 8,000 copies of it and <coughs> put it up in pubs all over England. They sent more copies to their friend Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia and to their friend the Marquis de Lafayette in Paris, because they knew these guys would be interested. Um, they developed the first logo for a political organization, uh, an image of a kneeling slave in chains, surrounded by the words, am I not a man and a brother? Mm. A little bit later, when women got into the act, they had a similar image surrounded by the legend, am I not a woman and a sister? Uh, they developed the idea of a political organization based in the nation's capital, but with chapters all over the country. This had not really been done before. Mm -hmm. I had their headquarters in London. They developed chapters everywhere. What 
in a way was the most unusual thing at a time when what religious sect you belonged to in England made a huge amount of difference because only Anglicans could become army officers, could get elected to parliament, could be in the civil service. They had people from different religious groups, principally Anglicans and Quakers, getting together, working for a common secular aim, unknown up to that point in time. And within five years, this group created the most remarkable political movement. Uh, By five years later, they had 400,000 people in Britain signing a petition calling for the end of the slave trade. That was more people than were eligible to vote in Britain at that time. Uh, They had a roughly equal number of people refusing to buy uh, slave-grown sugar. The boycott. Uh, The boycott. They came up with the boycott. Well, the boycott had been done before, but this was its first use on a wide scale like that. And these are tools we use today. So I got fascinated by this group, by what they did, and by the whole process that by which slavery ended in the British Empire, and this is what I wrote about in my book, Bury the Chains, because slavery in the British Empire, which meant almost entirely the uh, Caribbean islands, you know, Jamaica and Antigua and Trinidad and Tobago and so on, um, came to an end a quarter century sooner than slavery in the United States did. And it came to an end as a result of two things which we really didn't have here this enormous popular movement in England and slave revolts on a huge scale in the Caribbean. There were slave revolts in the southern United States, but not on such a big scale, and they were all quite quickly suppressed. In the West Indian islands, it was different from the American South in that on every island, slaves outnumbered white people anywhere from 5 to 1 to 20 to 1. And uh, that, you can understand how that made people uh, more uh, uh, likely to revolt because they kept thinking there's so, you know, so few of them, there's so many of us. If we could just seize some arms, we could take over. None of those uh, revolts fully succeeded in British territory. Uh, But uh, the biggest one uh, in Jamaica lasted for six weeks, uh, led to hundreds of deaths. And, you know, the, these, these two things, the movement in England and the revolts in the Caribbean tended to reinforce each other. The slave yeah. revolts would break out when they got word that the movement in England had made some advances. And then when a revolt happened, sometimes people would come back to England and testify before Parliament saying uh, this is going to happen again and again and again. And then finally, in 1833, the British Parliament voted to free the slaves, uh, which would take effect five years later. Yeah, and you talked about how the French Revolution and the American Revolution, these ideals of um, human rights, uh, might have pervaded that movement. But yet there was this massive cognitive dissonance for the general population. Thomas Clarkson um, went to France in 1787 and they did not want to get rid of slavery. In fact, when 
they had to give Haiti independence. They made Haiti pay massive reparations. Right, right. They kept paying for decades. Yeah, yeah and the um, and there was a slave ship named Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité. I mean, yeah. how? And, and of course, the American Declaration of Independence right. that all men are born <laughs> free I and know. equal. What? How? Well, we human beings have tremendous capacity for hypocrisy. And, you know, here in the U.S., you know, the founding fathers who are celebrated for so many things, so many of them were slave owners. Yeah, uh, right. They were. And they did not see yeah. the uh, the contradiction. Right. And some did sort of sense the contradictions. I think Thomas Jefferson did. And it ran right down the middle in his soul. Um but very few others were aware of it because, you know, they thought of Africans, black people as a different category who were not quite human. So. so tell me about Thomas Clarkson. What made him enter the movement and yeah. be one of the leaders? He was the spark plug of this movement in England. And um, the very moving story of how he got drawn into it he had been a divinity student at Cambridge University. And in 1785, uh, he was about to graduate in 1785. And every year at Cambridge, there was the most prestigious prize you could win at the university was winning the Latin essay contest. You had to write an essay in Latin. And these, at Cambridge and Oxford, these big... Uh, Latin contests were huge things. You know, it was if you won the Latin Poetry Prize or the Latin Essay Prize, it was an honor that stayed with you for the rest of your life, like winning the Heisman Trophy in college football here or something like that. So Clarkson entered this contest, um, and the topic for the Latin Essay that year was uh, write something about the morality of slavery. Cambridge had a very progressive uh, vice chancellor as the university head of the university was known, and he was concerned about this issue, which was extremely unusual for somebody in a position of power in England. So he used his position to set this as the topic for the Latin essay. Huh. Uh, Clarkson's essay won the prize, and he got carried away and horrified by what he learned about slavery in the course of writing this essay. He did research. He talked to people who'd come back from working on West Indian people in Britain who'd come back to from working on West Indian plantations. Um, somebody his family knew was in the shipping business. And uh, he and his brother, who helped him with this essay, looked at records of the, the shipping companies uh, I don't believe he talked to any black people in this process because there were very, very few in England at that time. But he was so dismayed by what he learned that he wrote a, uh, a very powerful essay. And he writes very movingly in his memoirs about how he kept a candle burning in his room all night long at the university in case a thought would occur to him in the middle of the night that he could write down and it would be of use in this essay. Uh, and um, uh, he won the prize, and then he he uh, got on the horse that he owned and set off for London to try to make his way in the world. And halfway to London, he 
writes about how the thought occurred to me that um, if what I had written was true, um, someone should devote himself to bringing these terrible things to an end. Got off the horse, sat down by the side of the, <coughs> the side of the road, and then rode the west rest of the way to London and spent the remaining 61 years of his life in the anti-slavery movement. Wow. And I've been to the place where he got off the horse. No. Uh, just, you know, I like to see these places when, when I can. Uh, and he then translated his essay into English. He expanded it. He rounded up various people who he thought would be uh, useful in this movement. And these were the people that he brought together in this meeting, this first meeting uh, of the Anti-Slavery Society in George Yard in 1787. Um, it was a crucial mix because he knew that the only religious denomination in Britain that was committed against slavery were the Quakers, uh, who had endured a lot of discrimination themselves. They didn't allow their members to own slaves. You'd be excommunicated if you did. And they were deeply committed against slavery. But there were only about 20,000 of them in Britain. And as I said earlier, you had to be an Anglican to get elected to Parliament mm -hmm. or doing anything else. So they had this initial committee had nine Quakers and three Anglicans. Uh, there was another reason that the Quakers were not taken seriously in Britain, even though a number of them were quite successful in, in business and wealthy as a result, which was that they followed a lot of old customs. They dressed differently. They wore these funny hats. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't take off their hat for the king or for anybody. Uh, only take off their hat when preaching or praying. Uh, they said thee and thou. They wouldn't use the names of the normal names of the days of the week and the days of the month because this was... These names come from Roman gods. Mm -hmm. um, and if writing a letter, you know, so it wouldn't have the date on it the way Britons normally would date things. And also they wouldn't address a peer of the realm as my lord because there was only one lord. Oh. Uh, so they needed an Anglican who could sign the letters. Mm. So the head of the committee was, was an Anglican. Right. Um, but everybody sort of understood that this was necessary, this kind of coalition. Uh, and Clarkson was the traveling organizer for the committee, estimated that he covered 35,000 miles by horseback all over England, Scotland, and Wales uh, over the course of his organizing, and set up regional committees, town committees, everywhere he went. And that slave ship poster we talked about was designed by one of them in the port of Plymouth. Um, and uh, to me, he's the great hero of this movement uh, in England. I want to turn now to another repressive regime of uh, South Africa under apartheid, uh, from Blood River to a bloody regime. Uh, but many people opposed it. And you actually worked at uh, Contact, I believe, mm -hmm. a paper that was anti-apartheid. Yeah. What was your experience there? Well, my first real exposure to South Africa came when I was a college student. Uh, and I had a summer job 
working for a newspaper that was one of the few outspoken anti-apartheid newspapers in South Africa at the time. This was 1962. It was a bi-weekly paper. Uh, I was just there for, 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 for two months on my summer vacation for college working there, but it was my first exposure to serious politics where what position you took on something was not um, you know, a matter of a friendly disagreement over the dinner table. It could result in your spending years in jail. And I knew people who had been in jail. I got to know people who had been in jail. I knew people who subsequently went to jail. I got to know one man who was later hanged. Uh, it was my first exposure to serious politics and to a situation, you know, the horrible injustices of, of apartheid, where I realized the United States was on the wrong side. So it was really a political turning point in my life. Um, I since then have been back to South Africa as a journalist a number of times. I went to write magazine pieces several times during the 1980s. And then uh, I went for a longer stretch to write a book, uh, The Mirror at Midnight, which came out in 1990, which was uh, about South Africa as it was then, really at the peak of apartheid. But I also wanted to bring in the history because I love working in the history and decided to do the have sort of have two narrative streams in the book, so to speak. Um, one of them was this 1988, which was basically the time I was there researching the book, was the 150th anniversary of something called the Battle of Blood River, mm -hmm. which was basically the battle that decided whether the Boers or the Zulus were going to rule that part of the world. The Boers won. And it was the battle that sort of determined that a small number of people with, with rifles could defeat a vastly larger number of people with spears and shields. Uh, that's always been celebrated by Afrikaner South Africans as their national holiday. And I knew it would be marked with tremendous fervor on this 150th anniversary because the Afrikaner nationalist regime was still in power at that point. Um, so I interwove the historical accounts of the events leading up to that battle with my travels around South Africa in 1988, um, going to places you know, that figured in the history, interviewing people today who are working against apartheid, and ending up at a pageant-like reenactment of the Battle of Blood River put on by a neo-Nazi group. So it was quite an adventure. Oh, my yeah. God. How did your family history impact your view of the world? Well, my family history, which I dealt with in another book called Half the Way Home, was this. My father was uh, the executive of a mining company, uh, which at the time I was growing up, uh, their principal investments were in uh, copper mining in the area that uh, then was northern Rhodesia and today is Zambia. 
And he made the terrible mistake of taking me with him on a business trip to Africa when I was a teenager. And I began to realize that my very nice home and my college education and much more was being paid for by the labor of African miners working far under the earth in very hot, damp, dangerous conditions. Um, And it was kind of my introduction to how the world works. Uh, and I tried to write about all this in that book. Um, I think it made me aware of the injustices in the world, uh, seeing that whole situation. I should say in my father's defense, though, that even though he was a corporate executive, he was a man of unusual liberalism. And on the issue that most divided people of my generation from their parents, the Vietnam War, He was totally against the war and was, as I was, and actually ended up on the so-called enemies list maintained by President Richard Nixon, uh, which came out in the Watergate expose, all the exposés in the wake of Watergate that Nixon had maintained an enemies list. Um, And uh, my father told people he was proud to be on it. So... Figuring out him, the contradictions in his life, how I had benefited from this corporate system that he was involved with was kind of the beginnings of my political education. And you were an activist. Uh, You were involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. So it's not that you just write about injustice. You actually have fought injustice and you have the privilege of having, I believe, an FBI file on you that you were yeah. able to Yeah, I'm, 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 quite, I'm quite proud that the total files on me from FBI and military intelligence totaled about 100 pages. Actually, I was very small fry in the anti-war movement. If they have 100 pages on me, they've got thousands on lots of people who were much more important than me. Uh, So I was something of an activist in those years. Um, uh, In recent decades, I've spent my time writing about activists rather than being one. Mm -hmm. Something which is a lot easier, I must say, to do. Yes, but it inspires people and it's necessary to understand history so that we don't repeat the mistakes as well. You teach journalism. If you could encapsulate for our budding journalists a few things that they should keep in mind. Well, I think find stories to tell that matter. And for me, those are things that involve justice and injustice threats that we're facing is certainly no threat greater than global warming at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, So many other threats. I mean, we live in a world where inequality is multiplying. You know, the inequality between the top and bottom in this country, between the nations of the world's north and the world's south, inequalities within countries, between countries, it's getting ever greater. And uh, there are a million stories to tell on those issues. And the job is to find ways of telling them that draw in readers or viewers or listeners. Um, Find ways of bringing people into your stories that uh, your listeners, your viewers, your readers are going to be able to identify with. 
that's what I try to tell my students. I love teaching. Um, I find, you know, a lot of students at the Graduate School of Journalism here at Berkeley, where I teach, are interested in this kind of thing. And uh, I, um, I really enjoy working with them. So... The running theme is injustice through. Yeah, it, it, yeah. those are the that's just the kind of thing that usually makes me excited enough to write, want to write a book. And it seems the division of people as well between yeah. those that yeah those are the, own and have things and that the, control others. <laughs> yeah, those are the things that I like to write about. My next book will not be about celebrity golfers. <laughs> uh, I also like to find parts of history that don't get written about much. Mm-hmm. Right. There's many books on the causes of World War One, but yeah. very few. Uh, right. And in fact, maybe yours is the only one that really looks at the opposition within families yeah. between those that fought in the war and those that decried the war. Yeah and um, were jailed for it. So you're captivating narratives, and, and they're so well-researched too, and shrewdly analysed, um, are really of great historical importance. So I thank you for that. And you've taught your readers much, but what have your books taught you the most? I think they've sort of taught me that if you find the right story, Telling it is no problem. I mean, thinking about King Leopold's ghost, you have this shrewd, evil, greedy king who was a master of public relations. He could have taught today's oil companies a thing or two. (laughs) Uh, You have these extraordinary heroes, E.D. Morell standing on the dock at Antwerp and realizing he was seeing evidence of a slave labor system thousands of miles away. You have Roger Casement in the middle of the Congo rainforest realizing he's an Irish patriot. Um, You have people like that, a story almost tells itself. So you just have to find the right people. Mm. And then the rest is easy. For me, it's the, the finding the subject that's the hard part. If you have time for one more question about Rose, what did intrigue you about Rose? Okay. Well, Rebel Cinderella, uh, my most recent book, is the story of a woman named Rose Pastor Stokes. And um, her story intrigued me for this reason, because she was one half of one of the most unusual marriages in American history. I'm always interested by unusual relationships. Um... And in this case, it was a relationship that was doomed, which in a way makes it even more interesting narratively. Uh, She was a Jewish immigrant from Imperial Russia, arrived in the country at age 11, uh, desperately poor. She worked as, from that age, 11, worked, worked as a factory worker in a factory making cigars for a dozen years. By the end of that time, she was supporting herself, her mother, and six younger siblings who'd been abandoned by a ne'er-do-well stepfather. Um, At that point, actually about a year after that point, uh, 
she met and fell in love with a guy who was Anglo-Saxon Protestant and from one of the wealthiest families in the United States. Uh, he fell in love with her. They got married. The marriage was so unusual, Jew and Gentile, very unusual for that time, extremely rich and extremely poor, so unusual that it was literally front page news in the New York Times and in many newspapers all over the country was reported overseas as well. Um, and uh, so I was just interested in how this remarkable marriage unfolded. They married in 1905. The following year, they both joined the American Socialist Party. Um, and Rose became one of the most prominent radical women orators of her time, uh, much in demand at labor rallies, political campaigns, and so on. Her husband, Graham Stokes, was much less articulate. Mm -hmm. uh, despite having multiple graduate degrees, she'd only had two years of formal schooling, but she was wow. a, great, a great reader. Uh, he began to be a little discontented that soon she was the one who got most of the attention from the press. Uh, the marriage came under great strain because they took different positions on the First World War. She, like uh, most of her fellow socialists, uh, felt it was a terrible mistake for the United States to join the war, spoke out very strongly against it. Her husband, Graham Stokes, was so enthusiastic for the war that he enlisted. Mm. He was too old to be sent overseas, but he served in the New York National Guard for three years and marched in military parades in New York and so on. And uh, uh, finally, they divorced very bitterly in 1925 after 20 years of marriage. But happily for me, they saved all their letters she kept a diary, and I wrote dueling memoirs. So I have very rich material to work from and uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, doing so to tell her story. And the interesting thing is that in every particular, there's the universal. I hope. Yeah, I think it's uh, the same stories of injustice, but it, it brings it home Yeah, with such clarity. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for your time. I really yeah. appreciate it and your acute insight. Thank you, Alex. Boy, you really covered all the books. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.